Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 372, is recorded live June 21st, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it just won't stop raining. And it is a long day today. At least a lot of light. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well and enjoying my, and not my, but the first day of summer and the longest day of the year. Woohoo! Yeah. Yeah, I, I was reading somebody and they were complaining that it's not any longer. It's the same, you know, okay. You know what we mean. There's more There's more daylight, at least for us in the northern hemisphere. Right. I think it be. goes down a second tomorrow already. Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't feel like we've had much of a summer start yet. Normally. I can't believe it's already 20th of June, you know. <laughs> 21st of June. We're in a heck of time going. Oh, it's just slipping away. Won't be long. And I don't know what it won't be long to. Probably death. <laughs> just... Oh, man. But it is a little soggy here. We had a heck of a lot of rain coming down today. A lot of the creeks overflowing. So I'm pretty sure that Thursday's Thursday was soggy Thursdays. I don't think anybody was going to get in the water unless you were doing it in your driveway. I checked out. I actually went down to Whirlpool Basin uh, late this afternoon. Take that back this morning, early afternoon. And uh, visibility is about six inches. And the water has not gone down in months. I I was, even before we had this last batch of rain, there's just spots along the river where it is higher than I remember seeing it. Normally it would come down and you'd have banks, but the water has been high. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be okay. This is, um, lest we forget, weekend, and they will have the duck and the amphibs available in Benton Harbor at Whirlpool Basin. And I think it's uh, 5 bucks for kids under 12 and 10 bucks for adults. Mm-hmm ever been on a, a big duck or a marine amphib a great opportunity for it yeah and then the water up high it's going to float a lot easier yeah they unless they you know get snagged on something they're going to have a pretty good time yeah it'll be interesting to see how they go against the current since there is a nice little current that they didn't have last i'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room we have people starting to float on in uh, we have karen joined us and we have eric so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We have a lot of articles quantity-wise, but many of them are, are pretty short this week. The first one up is Under the Sea Microsoft Submarine Data Centers. And anytime you can get submarine and under, uh, and data center together, I was thinking maybe this is my next job. I could, you know, is this one of those spots where to go to the data center I'd have to wear my scuba gear? As uh, cloud vendors are already using wind and solar solutions to conserve energies. The next frontier is the ocean waves. Uh, Microsoft is working on uh, conquering development of the oceans, uh, the ocean's vatness, and the search for alternative solution to saving energy is one of the founding reasons for Project Nantic, 
a collision of IT and submarine technologies, a cloud services as a virtual alternatives organization's on-premise data center. Mm-hmm. So cloud vendors take on the onus of data center maintenance and functionality. More companies adopt the cloud vendors like Microsoft are searching for solutions, reducing energy services required. And they said one option is the bottom of the sea. Land-based servers eat up energy and time dedicated to cooling and maintenance in hopes to eliminate the stressors of external disruptors. Microsoft research in undersea data centers continues latest phase of Project Nantic. For Ben Cutler, project manager at Microsoft's Project Nantic, the notion of submerging computers in water left him saying, I'm not going to that group. It's kind of bad when you say that for the job that you're going to. But once the idea was viewed through the eyes of an engineer, the idea of a sunken computer's Although nuanced, is not crazy, he told uh, CIO Dive in an interview. Project Nantic was joined in a marriage of two industries, IT and marine technologies, one of which Microsoft has mastered. The company turned to Naval Group, a builder of submarines, with the ability to offer solutions or renewable energies to supplement Microsoft's understanding of IT. The vessels modeled after designs of the Navy's group's underwater construction, according to Microsoft, is anchored by a triangular base will do air water systems to keep the data, the internal data center cool just as it would need to be on land. So all that just to tell you that they're putting data centers underwater. And you, you take a look at that photo. looks just like a pressure vessel with the Microsoft logo on the end. The idea actually is, is quite smart from the aspect you get 30 feet down and your temperature variance, you know, from like surface, mm-hmm. you've got, you know, natural cooling, not, I shouldn't say natural, but it's generally cooler, so your cooling requirements would be a lot less. It, it's a lot easier to cool in that environment. Yeah. Uh, because you're, you're, you've already got, the, that water's at a temperature that's ideal for, you know, running through computers. I can remember in the 70s, we were cooling uh, computers with with water and the, at the industrial scale, and and that's what they're just doing here. And I'm just scanning through it. There's not a whole lot. Well, I think the secondary part that we're talking about is that they can also use the motion of the, the water to generate electrical power. Then it's a, a two-volt addition. You're already reducing your heat load by being in a colder environment. And then second, if you can uh, use electrical energy produced mm-hmm. by the wave action, that helps reduce having to get your power from some other source. Well, one thing they could look at doing, you know, you've got the wave action, is there's also currents underwater. You could put some turbines in the right type of uh, environment and, you know, get a little bit of energy that way as well. I, I like the secondary pictures. I, mine just showed up uh, looking at that, what's inside of that canister you just talked about, that big tube pressure valve. Mm-hmm. That's quite involved. I don't know how all that works, but it's quite interesting, even just to look at. Surfacing might be a problem. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the inside yet. That, that part didn't come up on my computer. I just got the uh, image missing icon, so I'll have to take a look at oh, it later. Yeah, because it's a third major image going down. Mm-hmm. And it shows uh, Microsoft engineers checking 12 racks of servers to be located into the project's Nantucket, 12.2-meter-long Northern Isles data oh. center. Oh, is this the one where they're standing on the I-beam? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, take a look at it. You left. The left side, and that's where it goes inside of the uh, container. Oh, a little bit different than what I was expecting. I mean, that's yeah, what a server room looks like, but I kind of thought they'd have something a little bit more custom-made. And what it does not show, of course, is the cable connections 
to and through, but uh, yeah, if you, if that you, should not be a problem. Yeah, if you look at the the left side, and really what they're blocking is where they're doing the the cable connections to the racks. Yeah, and most likely what your your actual most of your cable connections are coming in the in the back side of the of the server racks there. But that's pretty dense. I mean, that's what you're going to see in these these farm setups. Is everything's identical? It's all organized. It's all labeled. Um, it it makes you wonder. Do they just like overbuild them, and then when stuff fails, they just shut that server off, and then you know you figure at some point in time you're going to have to take it up and repl- you know replace it anyway. So you just you, know, you run it like a commodity for three to five years, and then you pull it out and scrap it. Yeah, well, technology changes so drastically. Three to five mm-hmm. years is probably right. Yeah, eh, interesting. I I I kind of tickled my interest. So I thought we'd cover it. It was somewhat underwater related. And then we have uh, actress Katie Holmes has found that scuba diving is her most challenging workout yet. Uh, The actress recently revealed to Shape Magazine that it was the most scary exercise she's done. You need to really be fit to do it, she told the magazine. It's scary and you need to go with really experienced people. So scuba diving might be something you consider doing strictly on vacation. It's actually a pretty rigorous workout. If you're curious about checking it out for yourself, then need uh, here's what you need to know before you dive in. Uh, she says you'll feel the burn. According to Patty, the average shore dive in temperature water burns as much as 600 calories per hour, which is equivalent of jogging. A leisurely boat dive in warm tropical waters burns about 300 calories an hour, basically the same as taking a brisk walk. Although diving itself doesn't require much physical activity, according to Scuba Diver Life, It's the other factors involved that make it such a tough workout. You're underwater, which means the water around you is conducting heat from your body 20 times faster than there. So you must work hard to maintain your core temperature. Whether you're diving in the tropics or in cold water, your body's metabolic, 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 metabolic activity is working hard to keep your body warm. Plus, since you're uh, finning and moving around water, you're constantly expending calories. Not to mention being in the midst of fighting a strong current will tire you out and burn even more calories in no time. It strengthens your body before you even get in the water. You're wearing heavy-duty equipment, literally. According to scubadiving.com, the average 7-millimeter wetsuit weighs about 8 pounds, and then there's your regulator, mass fins, etc., which is estimated to weigh about 15 pounds. I think they're a little light there. And then when you uh, there are dive cylinders to consider, dive cylinder weighs between 30 and 50 pounds, which means carrying a full scuba unit works and strengthens the core, back muscles, particularly during entries. Lifting your scuba gear before you even get in the water is basically a weightlifting workout. While underwater, you'll be finning, which is a term while swimming while wearing fins. The movement requires you move your legs and feet in different ways to help propel you through the water because fins, fins, fins have larger surface area to displace water, produce more resistance, similar to ankle weights, and for a greater amount of acceleration. The torque to use to fin properly, according to Scuba Diver Life website, is to propel from the hip rather than from the knee, which is the key to strengthen core muscles as well as glute and back muscles. In, you know, as much as I appreciate them on this, I think this is what happens when you hodgepodge an article. I think what they've done is they've Frankensteined about five different sources together and then made assumptions. So I, I'm always surprised when, when people say how strenuous it is. To me, the dive itself isn't isn't that much exercise. It's all the stuff getting to the dive. Yeah, yeah. Once you once you get the suit on and you fall over the board, it's like duh. 
to me anyway. <laughs> it, it is. And, uh, you know, maybe your first 10 dives, you need to account in some of the excitement and adrenaline going might make you feel a little bit. And then anytime you do a different physical activity, you're going to have different muscles are being used and I could see it. But for me now, maybe I'm just a lazy diver. I find it actually the most relaxing and, and calming. If I'm getting a workout, I, I certainly appreciate I'm doing it while I'm diving. If you're not in a current, if you're in a current, it changes real quick. Yeah. Well, that goes from a workout to just plain beating your butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that counts as a workout. If... Yeah, in a current, it certainly is. Yeah, river diving is a whole different animal. Can. And then wreck diving, if you're uh, bobbing along the surface, that I, I always feel that the next day in my arms. You're just trying to keep your head above water as you're holding on to an anchor line or something before you go down. That can that can pull on you. But if somebody needs another incentive to go diving, that's a good one. There you go. I would agree, especially during the winter. And if you are diving wetsuit. Oh, yeah. yeah getting wetsuit in, in the colder water, you're definitely burning some calories. Yeah, the, the, that 600 calories an hour would be probably an underestimate then. If then we he, stayed down an hour in a wetsuit. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then here we have an article out of Florida, Deerfield Beach, 386 scuba divers broke their Guinness World Record on Saturday, June 16th for the largest underwater human chain off the coast of Deerfield Beach in Broward County. Divers from all over Florida, including Jacksonville, took part in the event organized by Dixie Divers. Over 40 team leaders made it possible. We are all thrilled, even my son, who's highly functioning autistic, but a junior diver, was part of the chain. Cinta Campos, videographer at the event, said, pretty cool to see all these divers come together for a goal. So they say well, they more, got the world just, record, but what, what was the world record? Well, I imagine now we're 386. Oh, I, you know, I'm thinking for the longest chain, to me, that's, dis, that's length. How, how long was it? But uh, they're talking, the chain, they're counting people. In the chain. As a link, yes. Ah, so it's, okay. So I, I guess so. But if they're really small people, then they wouldn't be as long as really big people. Well, then again, if you look at some of those pictures, some of those people are big people, and then you got some little <laughs> people. So you average them together, and you get average. <laughs> average people. But I'm betting what they did is they go out to chest deep or something. Everybody then, whole hands, goes down. Mm -hmm. Because that'd be a lot easier to control compensating for any kind of emergency because then you could stand up if you had to. Well, not to mention you could make the chain standing up and then everybody go down together. Yeah. So you could be able to monitor and organize, make sure it didn't break as you're doing it. Well, make sure it didn't break. And then also you've got, uh, even though you would be in relatively shallow water, not everybody could be down for five or 10 minutes, you know, to get everybody all organized and together. Yeah. So that, that would make sense. And it sort of reminds me of the mermaid item where you got, Team leaders, so if you had a team leader with 10 people and you had 40 team leaders, you could, you, could, you could manage that pretty good. And if you did it on the surface with the team leaders, looking at their 10, looking at the next team leader who's got his 10, you could sync that up pretty good, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, well, good for them. I'm glad they were able to get in. And who doesn't like to have a world record? Oh, absolutely. Or be in one. Yeah. And then we have... Way back down in Florida, once again, Florida is retrieving 700,000 tires after a failed bid to create artificial reefs. Divers restart tire retrieval from an estimated 700,000 drop near Fort Lauderdale 
1972, hoping to retrieve 90,000 on top of the 62,000 already exhumed. Uh, between 1 million and 2 million tires were piled in the waters along Florida in the 70s, but coral and fish never took to them as they hoped, according to Allison Schutz, manager of Trash Free Seas Program at the Washington Beach Ocean Conservatory Conservancy. Now we are using, we are causing other problems. Ocean has ever-changing currents and storms. Now they're moving around and smothering and killing natural coral, she said. The cleanup effort, which began again last week, is focused on artificial Osborne Reef, a massive pile of about 700,000 tiles dropped near Fort Lauderdale by dozens of boats in 1972, said Pat Quinn, a, a Broward County natural resource specialist overseeing the cleanup. The Florida legislator authorized $2 million for the work in 2007, and military divers began in 2008 exhuming 62,000 tires from their watery graves, according to Florida Department of Environmental Protection. Yet the effort stalled as divers who were tethered to the surface wearing heavy suits were called away over the years for more urgent duties. They, we were fighting two wars, and there were natural disasters. When the earthquake happened in Haiti, it was the same team who helped clear the port, he added, referring to damaged piers vital for offloading relief supplies. With a remaining 1.6 million Florida officials hope to raise another 90,000 tires over the next two years, the tires which were dumped before recycling was possible will be trucked across the state Florida's west coast and burned for energy at the Wheel Abrader Technology Renewable Waste Plant near Tampa, owned by private equity firm Energy Capital Partners. Still more than half a million remain partially buried in the seafloor. Tires have been used for artificial reefs, reefs off New York, California, North Carolina, as well as Malaysia, in, Indonesia, and Australia. In most cases, such efforts were halted after tires were found to be unstable. In Florida, leftover tires from the initial cleanup could be more problematic. They're harder to pull up and have spread further apart, making the past technique of bundling a few dozen together and hauling them to the surface useless. It gets really expensive, Quinn said. We have to rethink the whole methodology. Yeah, that can be tough. And it's not like they're doing a huge crew. If you look at the picture, that's a relatively small barge. Oh, yeah. I'm just wondering, some of the piles I saw, well, you just couldn't clamshell it. You, maybe you, know you could. I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, and obviously not from this, but uh, it looks like they've got a nice little crane. They've looped a bunch of tires with heavy cable. You bring them up, but you can fill that boat up real quick. Yeah, that does not, that's, I don't know, is that maybe a 40-foot boat? 40-foot pontoonish. I, I, don't even think, I don't even think it's that big. Yeah. It's basically two pontoons with a deck on it. Yeah, and they've got like a, mid, a little, mini, little mini crane. But it seems like you could come up with something where you could uh, like run a line that would run between the tires, you know, like threading uh, beads in a necklace. Well, that's what I think That's what I think they did do. Try to look at that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then they just loop it back to the cable, and then it pulls them up in a group. Well, that's a heck of a job they did. Yeah. Especially when you look at the before and after shots. Well, they're making a dent. You just got to keep at it. It was a oh, lot yeah. easier, a lot easier putting them down, I'm sure, than getting them back up. Yeah, and they don't really talk about the quantity of the other places that were generating. You know, they tried to generate artificial reefs, so it's not it's not uh, inexpensive either. Well, it seems like today's Florida Day. Uh, the, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission issued a reminder last week to would-be scalp collectors to use diver down warning devices when snorkeling or scuba diving. The 2018 scalp season for was it Citrus County runs from July 1st to September 24th. 
All divers must prominently display a diver's down device in the area in which the diving occurs. Displaying and understanding what constitutes a proper diver's down symbol are critical. This is according to Captain Ton Chip from WFC Boating and Waterway Section. The safety, diver, the safety devices are meant to alert boaters to the presence of people under the water surface and give them plenty of room. All vessels must make reasonable effort to stay at least 100 feet away from divers' down devices within a river, inlet, or channel, and open water vessels must make a reasonable effort to stay 300 feet away. For safety, divers should stay within those same distances of the display device. A vessel that approaches closer must be fully off-plane and at idle speed. Divers share the responsibility of boating safety with a boat operator. Ship said diving without the diver's down symbol properly displayed or using it for reasons other than to inform others of the presence of divers is unlawful. Divers down device should only be displayed when divers are in the water. When divers and snorkelers exit the water, it must be taken down. And a lot of people here in uh, the inland states do not realize that snorkelers do need to have a flag. Yes, yeah, snorkeler, you should have one. But, you, but the majority you, of them do not know that or do not realize there's a law. Yeah. Well, they're not even familiar. I mean, it's snorkelers. You, you look, I was just in Costco last week, and they have a big display, U.S. divers, snorkelers, and fins and masts. So they're not, I mean, if, if you just go and buy that and say, hey, let's go play around, you're not thinking that you need anything else. You're just going to pop in the water. But I, I'm also thinking most people are using these in the in the pools or in the beach, and they're not going outside a, a designated swim area. And I would agree with you there. I don't believe most of them would create a hazard, but by the same token, depending on the amount of boat traffic, it makes sense to have a dive flag with you. Yeah. And then in South Florida, Lauderdale by the Sea's Bug Fest appeals to first-time lobster hunters to combat uh, chaos. Uh, for the lobster mini season, Lauderdale by the Sea will host seminars and diving workshops during the annual Bug Fest by the Sea event July 24th through 29th. That can help inexperienced hunters feel more comfortable in the water. It takes place at the Plunge Hotel, 4660 Elmar Drive. Mini season takes place July 25th and 26th, and it's the only time it's legal to catch the harvest of spiny lobsters before regular season opens this year on August 6th. It gives amateur lobster hunters first dibs on spiny lobsters before commercial fishermen can put their traps in the water. More than 1,000 people typically participate in Bugfest. Lauderdale by the Seas Beach is the only ones allowed allowed uh, diving right from the beach. Because most lobster hunters go to the Keys for mini season, Lauderdale by the Sea is less crowded, giving first-time hunters a better chance of landing a catch. Divers can also catch up to 12 lobsters per day in Lauderdale by the Sea compared to Keys daily limit of six people. Six of six per person. We mark ourselves as Florida's beach diving capital, Steve. Uh, oh, goodness. Let's see. He is Delivier. Delivier? Uh, yeah, Steve. Steve. Yeah, we'll call him Steve D., uh, the city's public information officer. Even though there are a lot of divers here, it's not as crowded as the Keys, and not many divers go off the beach, so you might get pretty lucky. The festival is built around the Great Florida Bug Hunt July 25th and 26th which had more than 100 participants in 2017. In the contest, fishermen vie to capture the biggest lobsters in several categories by boat or off the beach anywhere in Broward, Miami-Dade, or Palm Beach counties. Registration costs $20. 
At 6 p.m. Tuesday, June 24th, Jim Chiefy Mathy, a retired fighter fighter and seasoned lobster hunter, will host a one-hour seminar on proper techniques and local tricks for capturing lobsters. Mathy will also give away copies of his book, Catching the Bug, a con- comprehensive guide to catching the spiny lobster. Mini season kickoff party will follow the seminar at 7 p.m. where guests can enjoy a free beer and listen to live music from Scuba Cowboy. Winners of the Great Florida Bug Hunt will be announced from 6 to 9 p.m. Thursday, July 26. More than 20000 in cash, dive gear, and trips. Another prize will be awarded to winners of the competition or raffle. John Chatterton will host a weekly diving workshop Saturday 28th. That will be followed by two wreck dives on Saturday, July 29th. Festival wrap up the benefit concert at 6.30 p.m. Saturday, July 28th. And Angeline Square and 12 Commercial Boulevard proceeds will support Dive Heart, a nonprofit that helps people with disabilities learn how to scuba dive. Last year we raised 25000 D said it's really special. It looks like a pretty fun event. You I got, would like to try that. You got John Chatterton down there. It's, a, it's the end of July. That's, that'd, be, that'd be fun. You see the size of some of those lobsters those guys caught? In, no. I mean, it went from little to monster. Uh, I'm, I'm all, Some of the photos, I mean, these are pretty good size. Some of the photos, it's hard to tell because the the camera angle. Uh, but you think of how little, I mean, they only had like 100 people. And look at the. Well, at that a, location, at that location. Right. Does they have 1,000 people participate in bug fed? Yeah. Now, was that 20 bucks to participate or 20 bucks for a license? Well, I, I'm not sure because it says registration is 20 bucks. Okay, that must. So you I'm must thinking have a fishing license. I would think. I would think you'd have to. I mean, that's one of those things you want to check into. This is the festival is built around. So is it registration for the festival or is it the bug hunt itself? Not sure. But if they raised over twenty five thousand, you know, that's a nice little tidy sum. Yeah, but that was the uh, the. I think that was for Dive Heart. So I don't. Is that twenty thousand more than? Thursday, more than 20000 in cash, dive gear, and trips, and other prizes will be awarded to winners of the competition and raffle. But I think it's a competition that is at $20. Yeah. So I'm sure you still have to have a, a license to do this. I don't think it's a freebie. Yeah, and if you get a couple of lobsters, you're going to get your money oh, back or at least yeah. break even. Yeah, my, my daughter a couple weeks ago had the lobster the first time ever. We went to the Bahana Yori's in South Bend, and I had mm-hmm. never been there. Before we had been to other, you know, the the uh, Japanese steak places before, but it was the first time we had gone there, and she had lobster and actually enjoyed it. So. I like crab better than I do lobster. I I like it all. I'm a, lobster. I'm kind of biased, to, you know, with a family from Maine, and that's what I always remember going up there, and we'd have lobster. Uh, I'd but, actually prefer scallops myself. <laughs> I really do. I know that's foul, that that sounds terrible, but scallops to me are just great. And then here we go. We have a map that shows 3,554 shipwrecks around Ireland, and they're saying that most are a total mystery. A new map shows thousands of shipwrecks scattered around Ireland since the 16th century. It shows how many maritime disasters are still a total mystery. The wreck viewer released by the Irish Government National Monument Service this April shows approximate locations of 3,554 shipwrecks across the 355,000 mile area around Ireland and the North Atlantic Ocean. Information about some ships' names year lost and cause of sinking are available, but most are not known, nor provided by the Irish government. Oh, or are not. Uh, one infamous shipwreck included the map of RMS 
Lusitania, a British ocean liner that was torpedoed by German U-boats, in waters around Northern Ireland in 1915. More than half the ships, 1,959 passengers died, including more than 100 Americans. The attack ultimately helped convince the U.S. to join the war, World War II, or to join World War I, and help defeat Germany. The most recent shipwreck recorded in the map is from January 2017, which 19 meter long or 62 foot long Irish fishing vessel sank without any loss of life. Those shipwrecks marked on the map just made one-fifth of the total number of shipwrecks held in the Irish government records. However, location for of the 14,414 other shipwrecks are completely unknown. Well, the Channel side is very populated. Yeah, it, look, it looks a little bit dense. It's, it's kind of like all these ships ran into the island and drifted off. Right, like they're around the, the uh, east side and north. And then all the way to the north at the top, that's a whole bunch right up there, too. Yeah. But like I said, I wish I knew the depth they were talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Maybe it, we'll have somebody out there who's dove around that will give us some feedback. So if you could dive on each of those, how many, let's see, it would take you 10 years of one a day to hit them all? <laughs> Depends on how much deco in between the days, too. <laughs> I think repetitive diving, gas to get to those. You'd be one tired puppy. <laughs> Sounds like a worthy challenge for somebody. Oh, yeah. And then we have some scuba divers that are on a mission to solve centuries-old shipwreck mystery. This one is off Portland, a 13-strong team led by diving officer Aldershot Subaquatic Club and British Subaquatic Club Diver Cameron Cromwell teamed up with crew from the Way, Waymouth-based charter boat of the Way Chieftain 4, skipper by Richard Bright Paul, also BSAC diver, to undertake the mission earlier this month. The team used metal detectors to help map the remains of two historic ships thought to have sunk between the 18th and 19th century off Portland Bill. During the dive, team photographed several metal cannons, mortar balls, and fragments of wood that may date back as far as 1700s, talking about discovery, Cameron said the two sites we have been known for about a while, but no one knows what they are. We don't yet know yet how old they are, but they could date back as far as the 18th century. Interesting, there were elephant tusks found previously on one of the sites, so perhaps it could have been a trading vessel from Africa or India. A lot of what's down there is buried just below the sand, which is why we are using metal detectors to try to get a fuller picture. We're trying to collect whatever evidence we can and where possible, taking lots of photographs of what we see to enable us to map the sites in more detail, plan more dives, and eventually, hopefully, identify the wrecks. There's so much history down there that people don't know anything about. We just want to find out as much as we can. Cameron, 54, originally from America, began diving in 2001 and is a BSAC advanced diver. He and Richard came up with a project to drive to dive the Weymouth Cannon sites as part of Cameron's work to qualify as a top-level BSAC first-class diver. Richard said the aim of the project, such as this, to try and identify the shipwreck and gather information to help them recount the circumstances of the ship sinking. Way Chieftain 4 Skipper Richard Brightpaul said these are a couple of sites that have been investigating for a number of years. The whole of Chelsea Beach area is an, investi- an interesting area. We think up to 300 ships were wrecked in the beach over the years. Many ships caught in the storm in Lime Bay ended up wrecking on Chelsea Beach. The death toll was prolific in that area. There are sections which is known as Dead Men's Bay 
as sadly as many people washed up there. Every ship has a story to tell. There are all time capsules. On most, there is a tragic story, as they tended to be a loss of life. Richard continued, two wrecks are much older. These two wrecks are much older. Older ships of this era primary, primarily made of wood. The majority of ships disintegrate and disappear over time. Most of the wood disappears and you're left with iron fragments, typically cannon, the anchor, and sometimes the anchor chain. It's pretty exciting to find some wood still to sites, but is a bit of a puzzle to piece together what you're looking at. It's not impossible that it could be several wrecks piled together on a site. The research on solving the mystery of the two wrecks continues. The project will not be possible without the knowledge and support of Skipper Richard, says Cameron, who is backing BSAC's new Use It or Lose It, Save Our Skippers campaign. <clears throat> the goal is to encourage more divers to use charter boats up and down the UK after reports some companies are struggling to survive. So it so- <laughs> sounds like they're trying to promote the use of these charter boats? On that particular item, uh, when I was looking at this one here, I got a nice little pop-up that says, I have to accept all the cookies and stuff to look at your site. So I didn't. But while you were talking, I went to the Dorset Echo who put this out mm-hmm. and bunch of shipwrecks, and then I sent it to you. You see it, Dorset? So if you go there, what that does is show some pictures of shipwrecks in that same area they're talking about. Now, what I thought was interesting about the pictures are you need to go there. The first one you look at the steel hull up on the beach, obviously in distress. The second one is one looked like they're doing lighters or taking stuff off the side of the boat. But it's really good shots of old ships that you just don't see. The third one is a wooden schooner that's really dry. It looks like the tide went out and left there. Mm-hmm. At least by looking at these boats, you can look at ship construction, which is outstanding. And these are really nice photos. Did you did you go there real quick or not? Yeah, I've got it loading. Uh, it's... oh. Still There's loading. a couple, I mean, some of them are just awesome pictures. And you can imagine, you know, and then a couple of them are wreckage, and wreckage is just that. But some of these pictures are pretty nice. I just thought I'd toss them since we're talking the same area. Yeah, I see it starting to load. It's trying. Oh, you're talking about the photo? Is it in the photo gallery? Yes. The Like the third one is the Stranded French Catch, K-E-T-C-H. Take a look at that one. That's the third one in. Isn't that awesome looking? It's loading. Oh crap! It closed. <laughs> I can, I get the uh, I so I see the first one, which is like the cover there. Got the kids sitting yeah, on the rocks with the boat kind of wrecked in the background. Right. Yeah. And I got just the, skipped over. Yeah. The second one has the the vessel with a bunch of tugs kind of pushing alongside, and maybe a lifeboat or, or lighters taking off. Yeah. Or lighters taking off of gear. That's true. Could be that too. And yep. the third and the one third is just one trying. Is yeah. Come on. Well, you can just go there and skip the rest, can't you? Well, I, I'm I'm clicking on the third. It's just yeah. I, oh, okay. It's just been in third one, and then the and the uh, fifth one is the one you want to look at. It's also a wooden boat that's awesome. Mm. The rigging. I mean, the the photo is so clear. Well, at least you got it later. Yeah, I got guys in the chat room have looked at it. They can see it also. Yeah, let me paste it into the other chat rooms. I like it because of the pictures. Okay, the the third one finally came up, and that's almost yeah. like that almost looks like a boat that got stuck at low tide, doesn't it? Yes, it's a stranded. But again, I'd love to find that on the bottom. That'd be beautiful. Oh yeah, 
Ooh, yeah, then, then the... Which one is this one? Fifth picture? The fourth one, where it's kind of... You can see the cliffs in the background, and it's just kind of sitting on its side. And it looks like they're doing the same thing. They're offloading some stuff on, on it. Yeah, the fifth one is the is the Ooh, uh, wooden yeah. one again, yeah. which is awesome. That's beautiful. Some great photos. We don't see a lot of photos like that around here of our old ships. Actually, I came across one the other day. I've been doing a little research. It's on the Chikora, uh-huh. and it happens to be wintering in the ship canal. Because this, this one here, this fifth one, is almost what I envision you know, Max Wreck being like. Possibly. Uh, maybe not quite as long or as broad, because I, I don't think Max Wreck is going to be a three-masted. But uh, that's just about what I picture. You know, mostly deck, you know, a shallow draft, kind of squared stern. And that one's not really a shallow draft there. That's no. That's a pretty good size boat. That's a three-master. Yeah, that, that's a pretty decent size. But Oh, yeah. yeah but what I was trying to look at is the uh, in the back for the rudder is. On our boat, we've got that big center stern. piling there. Yeah, stern, stern post. post. Yeah, and then trying you... to figure out where that would come into play. But the pictures I thought were really, really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of nice. And then here we have divers make eerie discovery at a site of an 1838 shipwreck. Divers recovering artifacts from the steamship Pulaski's wreckage have made a strange discovery. It gives credence to the eyewitness account the night the ship sank in 1838. The dramatic sinking called the Titanic of its time occurred 180 years ago this month as, sh- as ships sailed from Savannah, Georgia to Baltimore, Maryland. Witnesses had said that the ship's boilers exploded around 11 p.m. the night of June 14, 1838, when it sank. It, it took some of the nation's richest people to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. During a recent exploration of shipwreck site off North Carolina coast, divers found a mysterious grapefruit-sized encrustation that turned out to be a heavily decorated gold pocket watch. Fixed with a gold chain, the watch's hands are frozen at 11:05 p.m. We were question. I, I'm going to disturb it here. Yep. Why do they say eerie discovery and mysterious? Because a watch is not mysterious. It's not eerie. It's clickbait. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, and, and the reason I clicked on it was because it said eerie. Because I was thinking Lake Erie. Because we know that they like to do puns and draw stuff together. And I was like, well, this has nothing to do with Lake Erie. False news. Now, I, I think they it's just they're trying to get it. this. This is called detective work. Yeah. You know, if if something happened and that's the time it happened, then that's when the, the hands would stop. But I think it's too many horror movies. We were shocked, said Max Spiegel of Certified Collectibles Group, which is handling preservation of Pulaski artifacts. The Charlotte Observer is very unusual to see an artifact with that sort of impression of a historic moment. When a ship sank, think about how fragile the watch's hands are, yet they survived in that exact position. It's one of the most exciting finds we've handled in a dozen of half, uh, and we've done a half dozen shipwrecks. Nearly half the 200 passengers on board, the Pulaski ultimately died when, according to witnesses, the shipboard boiler exploded, throwing many overboard, hitting others with flying debris, and scalding some to death. Some survivors floated for up to four days and afloat some of the wreck before being rescued. The ship's location was only discovered this year. And then I actually and I actually went to the article in the Charlotte Observer, which does go into some additional details. They said divers have found items valued in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, including 150 gold and silver coins dating back to 1759. Uh, they said the ship sank 10 miles further out 
to the sea than historians originally thought. It's 40 miles out, 115 feet down, and surrounded by sharks that have a keen interest in the divers. Uh, well, there were 59 survivors, 128 were lost. Sank in 45 minutes, according to the article I'm looking at. That picture reminds me of the Elgin, doesn't it? The Lady Elgin? Um, the one, the woodcutting? Yeah, the pictorial that you see of it, you know, the explosion. Of course, the Elgin didn't explode. It got hit by another boat. But uh-huh. that aspect looks sort of like the same boat. Yeah, some, some certain similarities there. Yeah, they had the uh, side wheeler going on. Anything else in the where we had on? We'll have this yeah, and the, the other items in our show notes. Yeah, they titled it the American Steam Packet, which caused it to sink in 30 miles off. But I, I'm not familiar with that term, steam packet, though, are you? I'm not. I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. Oh, okay. I just figured that out. Generally refers to any regularly scheduled cargo, passenger, and mail trade contracted by a ship. Ships are called packet boats as they're uh, original function was to carry mail. Okay. Answered my own question. Well, and that does it for Scuba well, Nanook. I think, I think Karen was asking. I think she said we skipped one. Italy? Scuba Diver is on a mission to solve centuries-old shipwreck. Okay. And the one she sent me came different than the one we just talked about. Oh, we did that one. Uh, no, that was, the, uh, that was the Dorset Divers. Wasn't that the two guys? Let me reload it. I've already gone past it. Um, I'm looking at what she had mentioned, and it's got pictures I hadn't seen. They took part in a four-day expedition to survey historic wreck from a uh, Weedmouth-based charter boat. Yeah, so this, it might have been, but ours is a little different than that article. Yeah, this this is the one. Covered. No, th- this is the one we covered. Yeah, yeah right, the, but it's a different viewpoint from it. Yeah, this one it says there are two sites they've known for a while, but no one knows where they are. Interestingly, there were elephant tusks that previously found at one of the sites, so perhaps it was a trading vessel from Africa or India. Yeah, they got a picture of a guy here with a metal detector and a cannon, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it looks like a grappling hook off to the left side of him. I'd like to find that out in Lake Michigan. Cannon? Of course. Now, if I could find one made of brass, a small deck rail, and we were up north, Ooh. that would be even better. I do like that grappling hook. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, a lightweight, though, isn't it? It is, because my my son's been playing around. I tried to encourage him to make them, and he's kind of gotten bored with them. But uh, nice thing about that grappling hook, I guess, is also if you snag something and you don't want to dive on it and you want to retrieve your hook, you can just if you pull it hard enough, it should come up. Wonder if that's how they found that cannon. Ah, uh, probably not. You don't think they just dragged that along the bottom until it snagged something? I don't know. Possibly it's on the wrong side of the cannon, though. But who knows? So what do we got now? The last two articles, meaning the scuba, the uh, yeah, the potentially feature thing, yeah, potentially cool scuba gear. Uh, this one was from Digital Trends. It says this diving system lets you stay submerged for two hours, no tank needed. A Kickstarter campaign could be for you. Described by its creators as the smartest, safest hookah diving system around, Super Hookah possesses neither the complications of scuba diving nor the restrictions of snorkeling. In its place, you get a device that allows you to dive up to 30 feet underwater for two hours in a single charge. No back tanks required. Those pesky back tanks. Our audience is really anyone for the passion for travel, exploring, creating memorable experience. 
says the industrial designer and co-creator Adam Pitsky. We've designed Super Hookah to be simple enough for the average person to use safely and effectively, while enabling more advanced divers to get their diving fix wherever they go, without the hassle of bulky gear and tank rental fees. So how does it work? Simple. It's a sealed lead-acid battery-powered device which floats on the surface of the water with a line connection to the you? diver. No, did you? You hear me? I think I lost you there. How about now? Hello? Mac, you there? Okay, I'm back. Okay, I, th- I think you, for some reason, because I, I could hear you, but you couldn't hear me for some reason. Um, well, I, I I made the mistake of clicking on, there's a down below on that same item, it's a demonstration. <laughs> uh-huh. Clicked on it, and that's when I lost you because of the noise. Ah, it got noisy. So they go on and tell all the other thing that's amazing at and about. This fully kitted out unit will set you out, set you back about $590, which is about twice the price of an air tank. Uh, provided it will be able to reach a funding target to go into production. Shipping is set to take place in March 2019. Uh, uh, looking at the Kickstarter, at least I think I'm on the Kickstarter. Well, the, the harness assembly is quite interesting. And and that does have a um, automatic fill based on your air, of course. That's not a bad little feature because most of the ones I've seen around here, including the electric one that um, Jake has, mm-hmm. uh, we just modified his BC, put a T off of the airline so it would enable him to inflate the BC if he needed to. So right now they have 40 backers. They've reached $29,366. They have 52 days to go, and their uh, goal is 37000 So they're only about $7,000, which is less than 20% away from their goal. So well, I'm, I'm guessing they're probably going to make it at this pace. But they all use the same press, the future of diving, don't have to rent gear, super easy, awesome. They never say anything about scuba lessons, do they? No. Well, I'm thinking that this is... This is not something you want to take on a plane. Travel-friendly design. That is a big beast. Well, I don't know if you carry doubles. That's got to be smaller and lighter than doubles. Oh, well, certainly smaller than scuba gear, but I'm I'm just thinking, just rent down there. You're, how many thousands? If you're going on a plane and you're going to take a trip down there, how how expensive would it be? You're probably not going to get this. but Okay, well. there's another item. Did you go to the bottom of the page for that one? I'm down, I'm getting down there now. Find it somewhere. At the bottom, you've got other items. There's one you'd like. It's Titan Underwater Drone. Did you see that? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure where you're seeing other items. Is it other Kickstarters? Yeah, I, I got to go back. Uh, I found that. Scroll on down. It says Editor's Recommendations. Oh, I'm not seeing that. Or you just said, kit it out, $590 provided... Oh, you're, you're, it must be back on the actual article. Then. Yeah, on the article. Oh, okay. Go straight down, then you'll see Titan Underwater Drone. That's right up your alley. And I think we've talked about the ski boot bindings for diving fins. Yeah, we talked about that. Oh, yeah, yeah there, you, there you go. The drone. Yeah. It's another Kickstarter. And when is that one? That was on June 11th. Yeah, Titan Underwater Drone promised to go deeper than its rivals. 490 feet. And, of course, they've got the required model holding it. Not a thing wrong with that. Models need employed. Um, 
see. Oh, that's a cool drone. Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen that one before. I've I've heard of yeah. Titan because there was a company in Grand Rapids had one called the Titan, I thought. Yeah, the prices started at twelve hundred dollars. I wonder if this is the same one. Because it said uh, prices commenced at $1,200 for an all-in-one kit containing the drone, 50-meter tether, and everything else you need to get. Price options are also available. Shipping set to take place in September. I just hit the Kickstarter page. I'm curious. Oh, wow. They uh, were pledged for $50,000, and they're already at $97,692. 70 backers. What I think is interesting is all these kickstarters of diving related equipment and i never hear anybody send us a message saying that they've actually bought one well that early bird special looks pretty decent i kind of like this one though pre-order now because i like the ability you got up and down thrusters and you got front and back thrusters yeah that just seems to make it reasonable you know we, we we're, we're used to being above the the water and things tend to have an orientation. Yeah, I was just trying to get details on the camera. I know it says four, you know, four K, one eighty live, has a three thousand lut. Now that's got to be LED light. Yeah, it's a, the light intensity. Lumens, yeah, three thousand lumens. That's quite a bit. Light. Yeah. I don't trust anybody's specifications because I don't know of anybody who actually really measures it. They're going off manufacturers spec. Uh, 3,000 lumens, I think, underwater is probably not going to be that bright. Now, the close-up shots, I see one here. I'm doing a video of it. Uh, I don't know if that's all the information you get on it. There's like a compass. Uh, it's quite interesting, the data that you're showing, that that gives you, yeah, like your depth, gets you your depth uh, on your view screen, uh, your speed. A lot of the icons, I don't understand what they're for, but that's quite interesting. Anybody interested in the drone, go take a look at that one. That's quite quite interesting, and the price looks pretty reasonable for what you appear to be getting. Yeah, the, their website is www.geninnon.com forward slash titan.html. When I paste and send something, does that go to you or does that go to them? When they what? I just sent you something on Discord. Okay, let me I take that, a look. They see that same thing I sent you or not? Uh, Must be, because Karen, I see Karen's note. Do you? Yeah, she did. She put it in general. Uh, yeah, so somebody's got that. I'm about to save that one. And I'm placing it in the other chat room so they get to hear. Oh, okay. So that's uh, Derek and Aaron in there. Five basic kits. That's not bad either. Yeah, Derek is saying, I What's wonder it? if they'll ship it to Australia. Karen says probably, but it will cost that. It'll uh, be much extra. Well, it's just uh, shipped to anywhere in the world. Yeah, they'll ship it anywhere. And if you'd like to go all the way down and you see that picture I'm talking about, so mm-hmm. at 20 meters, it illuminates everything in it, the close-up viewpoint, not way in the background, but does a pretty decent job. And then we have one last little bit, which was uh, artificial bubbler protects divers in frigid water. I think that's uh, blubber. Blubber. I, I keep thinking it's a bubbler. <laughs> I'm like, what are they doing with this bubbler? Are they going to like a fizz you to death or something? Artificial blubber. Well, that makes yeah, it a whole. That's a, that's a whole got, lot I different. Got, I got natural blubber. I don't need artificial. Yeah, I've I've got plenty. Uh, <laughs> the Navy seals. Uh, <laughs> we're not talking about the seals like animals, or maybe uh, we're talking about Navy seals. 
the uh, military force that carries out dives in the Arctic waters or when rescuing teams are diving under ice-covered rivers or ponds. The survival time, even in the best wetsuits, is very limited, which is why they don't use wetsuits. Uh, finding ways to extend the survival time without hampering mobility is why it is a priority of the U.S. Naval and Science Divers. It's part of MIT engineering professors learned during a recent program that took variety of naval facilities. That visit led to a two-year collaboration was now yielded a dynamic, uh, dynamic, dramatic result. <clears throat> um, a single treatment that could improve the Navy's survival time for a conventional wetsuit by a factor of three. The findings, which could be easily applied immediately, are reported this week in the Journal of RSC Advances, a paper by Michael Strantno, the Carbon P. Dubs Professor of Chemical Engineering, Jacob B. of Tempco Professor and Associate Head of Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering, and five others at MIT and George Mason University. The process they discovered works by simply placing the standard neoprene wetsuit inside a pressure tank autoclave no bigger than a beer keg. Filled with heavy inert gas for about a day, the treatment then lasts for about 20 hours, far longer than anyone would spend in a dive, explains uh, B. And I'm abbreviating his name because I can't pronounce it. Who is an avid wetsuit user himself? He competed in a triathlon just last week. The process could have been done in advance, and the wetsuit placed in a sealed bag would be opened just before use, he says. They are both on the MIT facility, and they have never met until they were part of the Defense Security Study Group for the uh, Department of Defense. We got visit a lot of bases, met all kinds of military people, up to four-star generals. Uh, uh, B, whose uh, specialty in nuclear engineering has to do with heat transfer, especially through water, they learned about the military's particular needs and were asked to design technology project to address one of those needs. After meeting with a group of Navy SEALs, Elite Special Operations Diving Corps, they decided to need longer-lasting protection, and icy water is one that they could take on. They looked at different strategies that various animals used to survive in the frigid waters and found three types, air pockets trapped in fur, or in feathers, or in otters and penguins, internally generated heat, such as some animals and fish, including great white sharks, which are surprisingly warm-blooded, or a layer of insulating material that greatly slows loss of heat from the body, as with seals and whale blubber. In the end, the simulation lab results, they ended up with a combination of the two of these. Blubber-like insulating material that also makes trapped pockets of gas, although the case this gas is not air, but heavy inert gas, namely xenon and krypton. The material has become standard for wetsuits as neoprene, and an inexpensive material is mixture of synthetic rubber processed into a kind of foam producing a closed cell structure similar to styrofoam. Trapped within that structure, occupying more than two-thirds of volume and accounting for half the heat gets transferred through it are pockets of air. They found that air trapped is replaced by xenon or krypton. The material insulating properties increased dramatically. The result, they say, is material the lowest heat transfer of any wetsuit ever made. We set a world record with the world's lowest thermal conductivity wetsuit. It's like wearing a coat of air. They found they could improve survivability in water colder than 10 degrees Celsius, raising it from less than one hour to two or three hours. The result could be a boon not just to those in the most extreme environments, but anybody who uses a wetsuit in cold waters, including swimmers, athletes, surfers, as well as professional divers of all kind. Currently, the only viable cold weather alternative to wetsuits are dry suits, which have a layer of air between the suit and the skin. They must be maintained using a hose and a pump or a warm water suit, which is similarly required a hose and a pump connection. 
In either case, the failure of the pump or a cut and tear in the suit can result in a quick loss of insulation that can be threatening, life-threatening within minutes. But Xeon and Krypton-infused neoprene requires no such support system, has no way of quickly losing its insulating properties, so it does not carry that risk. We can take everyone's neoprene wetsuits, pressurize it with Xeon for high-performance operations, he said. I'm thinking it wouldn't work on my wetsuit. Uh, another possibility, they say, is to produce a wetsuit with the same insulating properties as present ones, but with a small fraction of the thickness, allowing more comfort and freedom of movement that might be appealing to athletes. The next step in the research is to look at ways of making a long-term stable version of the Xeon-infused neoprene, perhaps by bonding a protective layer over it. That's, that's an interesting aspect, but by the same token, you still have the, as you go deeper, you will compress it to make it smaller and less mm-hmm. dense. So I would imagine you'd still have that heat transfer issue based on the thickness being reduced by pressure at depth. And I was also wondering is... So you, you, you've you got neoprene, which has got these air pockets. So what they're doing is they're putting in this inert gas that that's, has an insulating property, but the neoprene isn't able to maintain that, that gas long. So you're impregnating it with that gas by pressurizing it. And then as soon as you expose it, that gas starts to work its way out. And I'm thinking that if you go down and come up and go down and come up, you could actually almost pump that out. You know, the first part is going to be your joints where you're compressing the neoprene and movement. That's going to go away quickly. Uh, and I did. This, and if you had that and then you had a shorty under your dry suit, mm-hmm. will that maintain your body heat better? I, I think it would. And their idea of saying, well, if you're using it for surface wear like the uh, skiers and or uh, surfers, this sounds ideal. You could yeah. reduce the size of it to something much thinner that would be more flexible on your body and still give you surface warmth, which would be quite a boon. And then if you can get that pressure, pressurized pressure keg and, you know, put that other gas in it, that sounds quite interesting. I'd like to know how much the gas costs, though. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, I don't, there's just something about Xeon gas. It doesn't sound like it's going to be pretty inexpensive because, uh, you, know, you, you know, they have Xeon bulbs, which are really bright bulbs. Uh and Krypton, I mean, if it can kill Superman, then why would you, you know, why would it be cheap? Isn't well, that, isn't it that like just... it's going to be expensive because Xenon is a rare, colorless, odorless, heavy gas. So as soon as you say rare to me, that means expensive. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, and a lot of this is proof of concept. I mean, they've proved that they've done it. So it's noble gas-infused neoprene. Krypton is obtained commercially by fractional distillation of liquid air. Uh, see, cost pure is 33 per 100 gram. $33 per 100 grams? That's what it looks like. <laughs> I don't know how much that is in, like, real money. I mean, I could see this being used, like, say you've got a safety suit. So you're on a vessel, uh, you, you've got a little bit of advance warning enough that you would be able to get the suit on. You rip it out of its package. Uh, so now you've gone from putting on something that you might only have an hour of life in, and now you've got three. And I and I think they're going to want to do a combination of you've got the neoprene, and then you would put a shell over it. So you'd have the you'd end up with a dry suit, but then you'd also have a buoyant wet suit inside. If you don't puncture the dry suit, then you're all that much better. You've got this insulation. Yeah, blubber kind of makes sense. Interesting. 
I'm just trying to find out how much it costs per cubic foot, and I can't find that. Anytime you say rare gas, so to me, that means expensive. Yeah, it, well, well, how like could... Helium. Helium's expensive. Helium's expensive, and I do know you do not want to use helium in this same situation. Well, yeah, and you're not going to use helium as an insulator. No, that's like the practical joke. If you got a... If you got somebody you really don't care for, you might replace their argon tank with a helium tank and, <laughs> and see how well that goes. The the post uh, dive bar party might be a little bit rougher than you're accustomed to. That's why I was wondering if they use uh, argon and infuse that. Would that do the same thing as? I would think argon would make a little would be a little bit more reasonable. There's already a supply chain for for divers, uh, but that's not exotic enough. Well, let's go ahead and call it on uh, Scuba the News and all that stuff. Uh, if you'd like to help us keep the show on the air, we could use your support. Any amount will be most graciously accepted. A uh, dollar or more uh, helps us out quite a bit. Um, $3 or more, you get early access to our show notes, which this week was approximately about 15 minutes before the show started. And we'd like to thank everybody. If you, if you listen or tune in... Uh, no, we we can't do this without you. So um, let's see what do we what do we got next up on the docket? I I don't really we didn't really have any dives to talk about. We did have a dive club meeting this week though. Yeah, we had uh, twenty two people I think at the meeting. That's uh, excellent. We had, well, twenty members, uh, two guests, both of who are now on the uh, mailing list. Uh, they look like they're interested in joining the club. Excellent. And there has been quite a bit of diving going on and. Uh, we introduced Amy as our newest club member because she did excellent. You know, got the the paperwork, so she got her card and her uh, her patch. Excellent. Of course, now she wants a shirt and a hat and a, a jacket. Yes. We're looking into uh, getting some new ones generated. But she's already been on the Havana. She's already been on the Rockaway. She's already been out to Lake Sixteen. She's already been out to Gull Lake. I mean, she's getting more dives in than more guys have all year. Yeah. Already. She's on that uh, first year obsessed path for diving. <laughs> I, I can remember that as well. It wasn't my first year, though. It was about my third year, but we finally hooked up with the dive club and everybody wanted to take us to their favorite spot. So you had plenty of dive mentors, supporters, and chaperones. So we, we got well, a lot of diving in that first year. Right. And her, her companion diver is Kevin, and Kevin's a, a diving fool there. He's going to be. <laughs> Getting her wet all the time. <laughs> She's just gonna get tired out. I don't know, man. I mean, that's the way to do it. You're you're into it. Let's get some experience. Yeah. Before you know it, she'll be a rebreather too. There you go. So, do you have a uh, dive safety story of the week? Yeah, I do. It, it's sort of similar to what we've been seeing before, meaning people are still being stupid. So we're gonna go through it. Uh, lessons for life: ignoring basic safety procedures. For the sake of a selfie, cost one scuba diver their life. Save your selfie. Bill had lost sight of his dive buddy, but he wasn't worried about it. Finally reached the cargo hold of the wreck they were diving, and we were stoked to take a selfie to prove he'd been there. Bill knew of only one other person who'd been in that part of the wreck. That diver was a legend, and he wanted to be a legend too. He got the photo, but there was one problem. He wasn't sure how to get back to the surface. The diver. Age 33, Bill had been certified for a decade. Tried to go diving a couple of times a year. Hadn't taken any advanced training courses, but he constantly read articles about diving and exploration. Dreamed of diving along those adventures and was certain he could earn his spot as an exception by proving he had been there, done that, and he was generally in good health to do so. The dive. 
Morning dawn, cloudy and cool with light seas. Charter boat was stable enough to handle the waves. Took a little more than an hour to reach the dive site, and Bill and his buddy, Tony, were the first team geared up and ready to enter the water when boat crew gave them the go-ahead. The wreck rested in 120 feet of water, but Bill and Tony had no intention of going all the way to the sand. They planned to penetrate the wreck from the opening on the main deck and make their way into the famed interior cargo. For them, it was like reaching mountain. We're going to have to move quickly. They were both using a standard recreational diving setup with single aluminum 80 cubic foot tank. Because of the limited bottom time they planned to get in, take the selfies, head back to the surface. The axe. The dive began with no problems. After a brief buddy check, Bill and Tony descended quickly along the anchor chain, doing their best to control their breathing. They wanted to conserve their air so they'd have enough time to get their photos and return to the surface. They reached the wreck and quickly found the entrance to the side package that would lead them to the cargo hold. Final okay, they took off inside the wreck. Bill was in the lead. Within moments, Tony lost sight of Bill. Tony had stopped to look down for the passageways for a moment. When he looked back up, Bill was gone. Tony searched around for a few minutes, but he wasn't willing to explore the wreck on his own, so he turned around, made his way back out of the ship. Waited several minutes near the passageway for Bill, but then made his ascent. Kept an eye on his watch at the surface, built it, and ascended within the time they had planned. Tony alerted the captain there might be a problem. Recovery divers were called in to help and search for Bill. They found his body in the cargo hold. His tank was empty. Analysis, Bill's official cause of death was drowning due to insufficient air, the cause of the accident stated several steps earlier before the dives ever got into the water. Bill and Tony's first mistake was planning a penetration dive without sufficient breathing gas to do so. The basic rule of planning a dive like this is to use rule of thirds. One-third of your air is for penetration. One-third is used for your exit. Final third held in reserve. Therefore, a typical 3,000 pressure scuba cylinder meant turning a dive when the submersible pressure gauge read 2,000 pounds at a minimum. Their second mistake was neglecting to use any sort of line to help them find their way back out of the ship. Neither diver had formal training in wreck penetration or entering overhead environments. Enough though, Bill read avidly, even though he read avidly about diving adventures, he didn't know to leave a clear path to guide him out of the ship in the same way he entered. Third mistake was not aborting the dive when they became separate. Basic open water divers know that when buddies become separated, they should search more than a minute, then safely head to the surface to reunite. If it's not practical to resume the dive after reconnecting, it's time to call the dive. We never know why Bill didn't abort the dive when he realized Tony wasn't following him any longer. It is easy to imagine Bill was so focused on his goal and getting a selfie, didn't even consider going back to look for his buddy. Getting the photo was his primary concern. For those who could safely dive, make this dive without a buddy, but those people have specialized training and solo diving techniques, carry along additional air to successfully complete the dive. Even if they were with a buddy, those divers probably would have had a plan in the event they became separated underwater. Bill and Tony didn't have that. Any time a goal becomes so important that you're willing to put aside accepted safety procedures and techniques or makes you unwilling to back off and try again later, you put yourself and your buddy at risk. Lessons for life from this event, plan accordingly. Plan for the dive you're doing or make a dive you're prepared for. Entering an overhead environment without proper equipment is a great way to get into trouble. Learn the skill. Seek out the required training for the diving in overhead environments before you attempt the penetration. Use the safety. Anytime you're making a penetration dive, use a safety line attached to the outside so you can easily find your way out. Mind your buddy. Agree with your buddy on a course of action should you become separate. 
Typically, that means searching on the bottom for a minute, then making a controlled descent to meet at the surface. And number five and last, ignore your ego. Don't let aspirations of greatness cause you to take unnecessary risks. You can always make another attempt as long as you survive the first. Well, it's the eerily similar to last week's story. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. We keep repeating this, and people are reading stuff, yet they're not doing it. And we did discuss um, that a little bit at the meeting again. We've been talking about these at the meeting. And it's the question again is, in your haste or your whatever to get into the water because you're having dough for a while, could you do things like Well, the the one trick is if you haven't been di- diving in a while, even if you have the training for penetration, don't make that your first dive of the season. <laughs> you know, work up to yeah. it. You know, make sure you've, you know, it's not, it's advisable in the, if, especially if you know you're going to be diving early in the spring, get some pool time and, you know, get all your gear worked out. Make sure you had your gear serviced. Uh, and then, you know, don't start on the, the 120 foot penetration dive. You know, start in the shallow dive, work your way up to it. Make sure you've, you're following all your rules. You've planned your dive. You got plenty of spare gas and you've got a plan and communicate the plan. And I don't know anybody in the club who does not carry a bailout when they're going that deep. Yeah, if you're going to be going deep, and and especially if you're going, because you got to measure depth a little differently, and we're not telling training you on how to do this, but you not only have to factor in your depth going down, but also your your distance going in. And oh, you're yeah. in, And you're in a much tougher situation when you go in, because you just can't say, oh, I got a problem and pop to the surface. You're now limited. You're You're into that wreck. And an and octopus rig doesn't help you out when you don't have any air. No, no, it's feeding from a single source. If you've got a one tank and you've got your octopuses, the redundancy is that it allows you, it takes two divers to be redundant because you're being redundant for the other person. And most likely your air calculations aren't factoring in how much air he will need. And if you are having somebody buddy breathe on your system, you're you're going to go at, more than twice the rate you were before, probably close to four times the rate. Yeah, Just and any time you're buddy breathing, you're you're on your way to the surface, or you should be. Yeah, you need to be getting out because that. Uh, I mean, you can have a full tank and you start buddy breathing at the bottom, and it will be sucked up before you know it. So, good article. And let's see, do we have anything that we want to plug? Uh, like they talked about in that story. And we've said, you know, you need to be supporting your dive shops, but also think about your charters. If you've been using charters in your area, uh, and you know, they they need people to use them. If they if they're not being used, they're going to go and do other things. Worst case, they stop doing it altogether. But many times, they find that the fishermen or uh, other people willing to take them out and use them uh, become better source of income. So when the next time it comes where you want a boat dive or a charter dive, they may not be there. You know, an, an interesting part about charters up here is it only applies when you're up north. When you've got good buoyed wrecks on both sides of the street, so if you got blown out on one side, you can go someplace else, or you can maneuver into position, like Duncan Bay maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, you have options, and that's why charters work. Down here, they don't because, one, you don't have that many wrecks. Two, they're not buoyed, and that's one of the purpose for the preserves is to they want to buoy the wrecks to make them easily accessible and maybe have people want to be charter captains because you don't have to spend your time looking for a wreck, putting on an anchor and trying to grab the wreck. You know, if you had a known buoy, buoy you're going to be more likely to be able to go out there in a short time, get the dive done, 
You know what I'm saying? It's more economical than most. Oh, it's more practical. It's a, it becomes a known quantity as opposed to you've got to have some experience because many of these uh, dive charters, those captains are they're they're boat captains. They're not divers. Absolutely. And talking about that though, Kevin, I believe is going to be giving a presentation soon. Uh, back to the steelheaders again. Uh, identifying the uh, buoying of some of the wrecks so they will mm-hmm. know what the buoy is for, why it's out there, and also encourage them that they've lost gear in certain places. Let us know, and uh, we'd like to check it out. And if it's down there, we'll bring it back up to you, especially yeah. if it's snagged in a wreck or something. Yeah, yeah, because you, you can't just assume that that buoy grabbed your gear. It may be the wreck itself, and we didn't place that wreck there, at least yet. Yeah. And about the only other item, but that's our more inclined for you, is that the club picnic will be August the 11th, and we'll be doing more details uh, for who's doing what, when, and where mm-hmm. uh, on July the 17th, which is the next mud club meeting. Excellent. Well, I'm going to make one of these coming up. I've been really light again this year. Uh, let's see. Seems like we got you got anything you want to plug, Mac? No, that was just, just a reminder for. Club members who might be listening, we got the, you know, the date already selected, so put it on your calendar. And then if Kevin was here, he would say, make sure you support your librarians. I like you said though, I'd be more inclined right now to sort support your local dive. Yeah, your di- dive shops need you, and if if they're having a hard time during the actual dive season, which is what we're in right now, don't count on them being there next spring because they're they're not going to bother weathering weathering out the winter. Yeah, you got to think about where you're going to get your air from. Is that about that time? I think it is. And I, I really don't have a great joke this week, so I've got a, a few not-so-great jokes. Well, I'm sitting down, so go for it. Okay, so here's here's some, like, a, just, a, just a quick one. So here's a warm-up. It says, how do heifers do math? They do it with a calculator. And it says, what kind of dog can jump higher than a building? And really any dog. Buildings can't jump. Okay, that's decent. Yeah. And then uh, what is blue and fluffy? It's, it's actually blue fluff. Uh, and then uh, well, One out of three is not too bad, is it? Yeah. And then uh, somebody says, doctor, doctor, I keep thinking I'm a wheelbarrow. And the doctor says, well, don't let people push you around. I think we're going to be working on this for next week. <laughs> okay, so so here here here's we'll do this one as a as a as a final closer. Please. A polar bear walks in the bar and says, "I'll have a pineapple juice on the rocks." The barman replies, "Why the big paws?" Oh, I don't know," says the polar bear. "I've always had them." Okay, <laughs> we'll work. We'll work on getting some better ones. Yes. Good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. <laughs> on that note, go out there and get wet and stay safe. <laughs>